you don't give up, <laughs> just keep going and picking yourself up. Yeah, yeah. You know, you'll finally get to that place, but it's a lot of work. It's not an easy journey, that's for sure, because it's so much rejection. It's your art. It's your. It's like as an artist, you're putting your stuff out there, and then people are turning you down. Like it's the worst, <laughs> and it's a lot of rejection. But you have to be able to deal with it and pick yourself back up. But yeah, I feel like those first films are just kind of what shaped my style and stuff and what kind of stories I want to do. Everything is about indigeneity, so just part of my storytelling. Louise Pampometer, and I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. I'm a lawyer, professor, author, and activist from Eel Rumbar First Nation, and my motto has always been education for action. Education for awareness doesn't really change anything, so we're all about action on this podcast. I feel like action is the only way to get Indigenous rights recognized and implemented, to really achieve social justice, and to protect the planet. And on this podcast, you're going to get an education of a different kind. It's one that's enriched with the cultures and insights and experiences of Indigenous activists, land defenders, and water protectors on the ground, as well as artists and lawyers and authors and academics and leaders of all kinds who are on the front lines and blazing trails in all areas. And today's podcast is with one of my favorite filmmakers ever. She's just like one of my favorite people ever from Attawapiskat First Nation. So stay tuned. You really don't want to miss this one. This one's going to be pretty awesome. Welcome back, Warriors. I am so glad you are joining us on the Warrior Life Podcast, especially today. Today's guest, I'm like just so excited. I chased her down and chased her and chased her and chased her till she finally agreed to come on this show. Dr. Jules Kastashin is just like one of the most amazing people as a community member and an activist and this like amazing Native woman blazing trails, but she's also an award-winning filmmaker, a writer, a performance artist, an academic, a public speaker, a business owner. I mean, you could just literally give I don't know, 20 adjectives to what she's doing. And there seems to be a theme. It feels like every time I talk to an artist, they're not just doing one thing. They're doing a thousand things. And on top of all of that, she has this amazing educational background in theater and media and the arts and documentaries and methods and all of these other things. And I think most people people know her from her uh, impressive list of shorts, documentaries and films. But honestly, she just does so many things, and she's also this amazing mother. So without further ado, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Jules. Wachi, thank you for having me. Wow, I feel so special and honored to be here. Like I was saying, (laughs) I use your podcast, or I used to when I was teaching in class all the time. So I'm like, yeah, I'm here. (laughs) (laughs) Yay, now you can use it, and you will be on the podcast. (laughs) Right, that's awesome. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And, and thank you for doing this. Cause I know this is like festival time and all the people who are in your line of work, they're in festivals. We know Imaginatives coming up. There's VIF and TIFF and all these other amazing places where filmmakers get to showcase their work. And I want to talk to you about all of that, but I think for people, like there might be like five people on the planet who don't know who you are. Just in case, I'm wondering if you could just introduce yourself the way you'd like to, where you're from, and just a little bit about yourself. So, Wache, Jules Kustachanina, Nitisinikasu, Nito Chin, Nito Tem. So, I'm a band member of Ottawapiskat First Nation, and I live here on the unceded ancestral lands of the Coast Salish peoples, otherwise known as Vancouver. I've been here since 2015 when I started my PhD at UBC. And um, yeah, my focus was on Indigenous documentary protocols and process, methodologies, and how Indigenous people approach our stories. Um, Yeah, I'm a mom. I got four sons. Loving the West Coast. I love the mountains. I love the ocean. I just feel like it's just the place to be for me. Um, What else can I tell you? I don't know. (laughs) 
my mom, I moved my mom here. Uh, you know, oh, she's a great speaker and um, we lost my brother before COVID and she lost her partner. So I thought it was really um, an important time for her to be with, with us so that we could take care of her. And yeah, so the only son that I have that is not here is my middle son, Mahegan, who's in Toronto. <laughs> okay. Trying to get it. He's at Nation Talk, actually. So that's kind of cool. What? Really? Oh, that's so awesome. <laughs> yeah, I'm really proud of him. He's really happy there. He loves it. So cool. Oh, well, you know, a lot of people like Toronto. Not everybody's from Toronto. I'm not from Toronto. But when you come here, there's just so many opportunities yeah. and so many Native people. I mean, I don't think... It, other people really understand just how many native people there are in Toronto that's in like every walk of life. And it's so easy to connect with people. Sometimes it's not like that in urban areas, but in Toronto, there's like what 50 native organizations alone, let alone like the local first nations. So that's all good. And you know what? I think about moms and you think, you know, Oh, you know, you brought your mom to live with you and you think about like taking care of her and supporting her. And then I'm thinking, okay, well, if, I know moms and grandmoms, and they're also doing the reverse. They're like cooking and cleaning and imparting their wise advice, whether you ask for it or not, and all the lessons in life. So that's good. Like everybody benefits all the way around from that. Yeah, so. you know, it's great having my mom here. So yeah, we, well, yeah, I'm sure exactly. we have nerves that we spend too much time together, but it's okay. <laughs> she's like, you know, when you hang out with your mom, they become like the mama bear. So and they kind of take control out of everything, you know, over everything. So. Anyway, it's Gosh, all good. Been there, <laughs> done that, you know, a few times. But that that being said, um, so when I when I bring people on this podcast, I, I'm just a curious. Maybe it's because I'm from the Maritimes or Mi'kmaq, but I'm just like so nosy about things, and I always want to know how people got started. And I don't mean like got started in oh, how did you incorporate your business? But I mean like you were a little girl where you're like. I want to be a police officer. No, I want to be a teacher. No, I'm going to be a film. I'm going to be a filmmaker and I'm just going to do all of these award-winning films or what was your, like, how did you come about this? That's a great question. I think I, you know, I, I come from a family of storytellers. Like everybody's telling stories I Had all my aunties, my grandmother's sisters and, you know, her siblings and they'd all come together and then they tell these like crazy wild stories and, everybody be laughing and smiling. It was just part of my childhood, which I think I've like, you know, I hold very dear, just something that's, you know, natural second nature for me, I think is telling stories. And, um, and then I think, you know, I'm a child of the seventies. We didn't really see ourselves reflected on the screen too much. Right. So I always felt that I had stories to tell. And um, I remember I was in grade four and I, I, I produced a play called the play and it got out of hand, but it was so exciting. I was like, I got all the students together and it was based on this little um, concept that I had. And, and just ever since then, I was like, I want to be in front of the camera. I want to be behind the camera. I don't know. I was just like this kid that was like, you know, shy, had a hearing impairment. You know, I didn't do well, do well in school. So I just felt like I was just one of those kids that would be in the back of the class and I would have my hair down like this and I would make my little dolls under my hair and just be in the creative world imagination. And, you know, I think sometimes, you know, I don't know, I'm a kid of the 70s, so I know how hard it was being a, a Native kid in school and how racist it was. So, you know, you kind of keep your distance. And I think that's what I did. I escaped and I used storytelling and my imagination to do so. So I think that was it. And then... um I went to Concordia University and it was one year after the Oka crisis. So that was like a huge shift for me, right? Like I always knew I was native, like grandparents spoke Cree, they didn't speak English, they were hunter trappers, but I didn't really understand the urban context of being an indigenous person. You know, when you live it, grandpa's gone for six months hunting, like you're living the culture, like you don't think about your identity so much. But going into a city center, urban center, it's a little bit different in terms of how people identify and their fights are a little bit different, it seems. Mm -hmm. So, but after Oka and going to Montreal was like mind blowing. And then seeing Alanisa Bomzuin's 270 years of res resistance, mm -hmm. I was like, oh my God, like her voice, we got the voice of, in of an indigenous woman that replaces the white man, the didactic voice in those old documentaries, right? I don't know. I just, that's just, but I started in theater. It took me a while to get into documentary, but I'm, I've always been a doc nerd. I feel like my generation, they used to put on documentaries on rain days, right? And you'd have to watch these yeah. really boring, boring, long documentaries. <laughs> 
and I've come, you know, I've become accustomed. So <laughs> I think our whole generation, like our kids are like, what are you watching that? It's so boring. <laughs> yeah. right? I, I don't know. It's just something like our attention span is better. I don't yeah. know. Honestly, I'm a child of the 70s too. I love it when I get to talk to someone who is also a child of the 70s because life was 100% different. And right? I went to school off reserve, you know, so it's like all white people and I had the same experiences. But then I think about, yeah, like substitute teacher day, you get a documentary. Rain day, you get a documentary. Like the last week of school, you get documentaries. And you're just like so thankful it wasn't school that it's like, I love these documentaries. And then you become hooked on them. And it's like, okay, now I also like nature shows. Yeah. I also like other shit. Like it's, it becomes a thing. So I'm with you, sister. I am all about the documentaries and the whole grade four thing. In grade four, my brother gave me a tape recorder. So oh, that wow. I could take songs on the radio, but instead I became the lead anchor Pam from PAM News. Wow. And I had my own PAM News show, and I just thought I was the best. Isn't that amazing? Like how those childhood, like those experiences shape yeah. who you are. And it's just something inspiring, and you're comfortable in that, you know, creative yeah. space. You know, I just think that's so cool. Like, there you go. There you go. Hey, we're both doing what we were doing in grade four. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Never mind what we did in between, right? Like all the like university and like I'm a lawyer and you're doing all these. Now you're no. doing the exact same thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I love it. I love it. Okay. Well, so you were always a storyteller. You made a play called The Play. I think that's probably the best. It's almost as close as PAM News. I mean, PAM News and the play. I think that's as close as you're going to get. So, all right. You know, you want to be a storyteller, but there's this annoying thing called like K to 12 education that kind of intervenes. And then there's like the university track, which is great. Like, I'm a big fan of education, obviously. Uh, but how did you get into the whole educational track? Because that's not every filmmaker's experience, right? Like, some filmmakers just went on to storytelling, but you have like this huge academic background. So how, what made you decide to do that path? Well, I think this might be pretty, a pretty sad, bleak <laughs> story, but I feel like, you know, if, when you've dealt with that kind of crap in the educational system, you, you, you feel less than, you don't feel as intelligent as the other, you know, your other classmates. And I just felt like, you know, being a kid, I didn't even think I was ever going to go to university. You know, none of, no one in my family had ever went. So my mom was, uh, she left residential school at, uh, with a grade four level education. So and she went to St. Anne's from age five to 16. And she never pushed us to get an education because it wasn't safe for her. So, and then also having, or being labeled with someone with a, a, a learning disability and also having a hearing, hearing impairment, I just felt like there was struggle after struggle or challenge after challenge. And I just never felt smart enough. That, I mean, it sounds sad, but that was, the, I think that's a reality for a lot of Indigenous children and youth is that we have such a traumatic experience in school and we internalize it. And in fact, we are quite intelligent. We have this lived experience, but we just don't fit in into that colonial world. It just like, we're just completely erased from it. Like, I remember my mom talking about residential school as a kid and listening to her cry and all that stuff. And then nobody talked about it outside of our community. So there was no affirmation, not that you need it, but it's just like, okay, how come this is not in the curriculum? Right. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, so <laughs> this is kind of funny. So I barely passed. I think every course was like 51 or something. I don't know. Like I, I did so terribly in school and then I, you know, barely finished high school. And then I applied to, um, it's kind of funny, actually, I applied to Concordia University. And I got into the theater program, but I didn't get through admissions because my marks were terrible. And I actually had a friend who helped me with the application because otherwise I wouldn't have known what to do. And uh, at that particular time, I got offered a lead in a play. And um, a position in a tattoo salon. So I would have been a tattoo artist. Anyway, it's just an interesting crossroads. But um, I got into the theater program at Concordia University. I didn't know what to do, but I got my rejection letter and I picked up the phone 
And I called the guy who was on the bottom of the letter with snail mail back then. So I called the number and I said, who's your boss? Who's your boss? <laughs> so I got his boss's name and number and I called the boss. I don't even remember what his name was. And I said, and I totally lied and said, oh, this guy here that sent me this rejection letter told me to book an appointment with you so I could appeal. Totally lied. And then I ended up um, getting an appointment with him and I hitchhiked from Ottawa to Montreal. And I remember going into this office and the campus was huge, right? You're like, holy crap, this is so intimidating. Had no money, hitchhiked, went into the office and I sat there and I was a theater actor, right? So I just, <laughs> I started crying. I was like, you don't understand. Like I'm the first person in my family. If I don't go to school, I'm gonna be a tattoo artist. Like, which would have been cool anyways, but it was just like, started crying. And he just sat there, like he didn't even move. Like he was like a zombie. He was just like, whatever, you know? And then he goes, come back in 20 minutes. And I was like, okay, cool. So I went out, sat outside, came back in after 20 minutes and he was gone and there was nobody there, but there was a letter on the receptionist's desk with my name on it. And it was an acceptance letter. <laughs> and that's how I got theater it. Theater works. You must, everyone needs to be in theater. Nice. I love that story. Like, and I was so excited. Like I called my mom, mom, oh my God, I'm going to be a university student. Like I didn't even know what that meant. I failed miserably at school. I couldn't even write an essay. So for me, I was like, I didn't know what I was in for. But what this friggin' guy did is he added two extra years and put me in an ESL class. So I was the only English speaking person. <laughs> oh my marks were atrocious like if you I couldn't even put anything together like I slipped through the cracks like I didn't have any support during school but and then when I graduated later with two kids you know I was in the top percentile so I just needed to figure out the way that it worked I didn't know how colonial mindsets worked I had no idea so anyway that's what happened <laughs> I, I love it uh, like this is the whole like you know, when you're a kid in the seventies and how you had to get into school in the old days, it's kind of like yeah. in my high school, there was like high school. And then if you wanted to get into university, there was like college prep. That's what yeah. they called it. So you had to take like the top math, the top English, all those things. And I, I didn't do good either. So I, when I first applied to mine, I, I didn't get in. So I contacted them as well. And I said, Hey, I, I need to get in same story as you. My family never went to university. Girl, home, I'm like, <laughs> well, you're going to have to prove yourself, you know, like you're going to go and have to take like grade 12 math and calculus and all these things before you get in. And I was like, okay, how's this for a deal? What if I take those things while I'm in university and my graduation is conditional on that? You know, you just will do anything to get in. And I'm like, oh man, not only am I going to university full time, but now I'm taking all these night classes and I have to pass all these courses that I don't want. But you know what? As native kids like we do that right once you know what you want to do it's like you know none of these barriers are gonna let us go I'm I'm so glad like I just I love that story I feel like our stories are very similar even though from a very different first nation so you you do that you get into university you obviously succeeded there um what makes during my <laughs> Yes, I had my two boys during university too. But you know what I told my friends who were like, oh, it must be so hard. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not out partying. Uh, yeah. I have to stay home with my kids. So it's like, what else are you going to do? But study, it actually was kind of an asset where all my other friends were like, couldn't get up the next day. couldn't go to class. I'm like, sucks to be you, but I got kids. So it works for me. <laughs> I think so too. Okay. I think we come from such strong people that have endured so much. It's like yeah. in our DNA, right? Like that challenge. What is that? That's nothing. Like I'd rather deal with school stuff than not the other things I have to deal with, like homelessness or whatever else I was faced with at that time. So it's just an interesting, it's interesting. It's all about perspective. <laughs> and, and think about native people. We've been yeah. fighting wars with kids on our hips. So like, why, why wouldn't we do university with kids? Like, come on, we can do anything yeah. with kids. <laughs> and now you have like so many kids. That's just... Okay, so so you survive this like with kids, um, and all of your like struggles and the whole system, which is that's another whole podcast. What made you decide to go on? Were you just like, oh, I'm now into the rhythm, I want to do this, or was it very specific to the area that you were going to study that you really thought you wanted to go on? Well, I think you know, being a single mom with the two boys, um, my second passion was the social 
uh, services sector. So I ended up working sadly, like I, I feel like I put, this is kind of sad too. Oh my God, I'm all full of sad stories, but you know, um, being a mom and not really, you know, having um, a lot of support and stuff. I had my mom and my grandparents there, but they were kind of um, living with me at sometimes and leaving and stuff. But I just felt like I, I needed to work nine to five. So I went back to school and took some college courses. And then I ended up um, um, being the acting CEO of Ondeon. And I oversaw like the crisis center and I oversaw like the shelter and the daycare. So and then I worked at Elizabeth Fry, too. So I ended up working in the social service sector for a long time because it paid the bills. Um but I always had my one foot in the arts world, which I think is what kept me sane because I think, you know, kudos to those who are working in the social service sector because it's sometimes a thankless work, you know, and you get burnt out and it's just really hard work, especially when you're working in the Indigenous community because you care so much, right? You can't just go home and shut it off. But, um, and then I think when I got, uh, when was it? Oh, I was pregnant with the twins. So I didn't expect to have two. Supposed to be just one, but I got twins. <laughs> and then, right? And then I just said, okay, I need to get out of the social service sector. I've I've done everything I needed to do. I feel like I paid my dues. I worked with my community. I feel good about the work that I've done, but I need to honor my spirit and go back into the arts full time. And then I applied to do my master's at TMU now, it's called, I guess. Toronto yes. Yeah. And I got in and then just left didn't really go back to social work and been in kind of academia ever since and lived in Sudbury for a few years and applied for my PhD because I always wanted to move to Vancouver and education seems to be the only way that works for you because you get funding and all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I did it. Now I'm here. I just feel like you have to make a choice. I don't know. In everybody's life, you're faced with choices, right, that you have to make. And I don't know how to explain it, but it's like, it's only happened a few times where I've made like that ultimate choice that's changed the trajectory of my life. Do you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. you can either go this way or that way. And then it's like, when you put it out in the universe, it's like things kind of fall into place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that was it. I just decided to leave and go back into the arts and used education as a way to do so just because it worked for me. I was able to do it that way because I found doing my master's was amazing. It was so much, I did it in documentary media. It was like so much fun, right? It was just like, oh my God, like, wow, this is not even work. <laughs> Man, why didn't I do that? I could have my own PM news show right now. <laughs> Darn it. <laughs> well, you do. <laughs> I guess I could just rename it. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's awesome. Okay, so uh, I need to know, so you want to be like, you're already a storyteller. We come from storytellers. You wrote the play. Uh, you go and you do, you know, education in this area. When did you actually start producing stuff? Was it like when you were in your undergrad or was it at the master's level where you kind of practice around and say, I'm going to do a couple documentaries or shorts? Like, did that come about at the same time as your education or was it after? Well, I started in theater, so I did a lot of theater because my degrees in theater, my undergrad. So I did a lot of stage stuff and behind the scenes and on stage performance. And then I think and then I did a lot of background stuff, too. And I was always auditioning. So I was always auditioning for stuff, you know. Um, and then uh, I think when I did my master's, was it before that? I did like the intensive film, pro film program, the Chang Center or something at TMU. I don't know if it's still there. But this is back 2000. And Eight possibly, I think. Anyway, so I did that. And that was like a 12 week intensive. And I had my twins. And then we made um, little short films. And then I did a night course. I was like, okay, I'm going to go all in. And I also did a night course, which was produce your own short film, which I thought at the time was like the best movie in the world. But looking back, it's huge. But anyway, but I'm proud of myself. <laughs> I did it with like four kids at home. Um, and then doing my master's, I did, I produced a, a feature called Remembering Inini Moen about um, remembering our Indigenous languages and like going, and I went back to Ottawapiskut and I filmed up there and um, did some, I finished my first NFB feature documentary, Wapake. So that's going to be premiering at VIF. And I did another uh, feature doc called Chubby Cree about that little boy, Noah, who could sing. I don't know if you've ever, oh my God, he's beautiful. Mm -hmm. And then I did 
I'm in post with my second scripted feature. It just kind of happens, right? Like I feel like if you don't give up, <laughs> you just keep going and picking yourself up. Yeah, yeah. You know, you'll finally get to that place, but it's a lot of work. It's not an easy journey, that's for sure, because it's so much rejection. It's your art. It's your. It's like as an artist, you're putting your stuff out there, and then people are turning you down. Like it's the worst. <laughs> But it's a lot of rejection, but you have to be able to deal with it and pick yourself back up. But yeah, I feel like those first films are just kind of what shaped my style and stuff and what kind of stories I want to do. Yeah. Everything is about indigeneity. So it's just part of, you know, my storytelling. And honestly, like you have to practice at everything, right? You know, like I, I look back at my first few YouTube videos and I was like, oh my God. <laughs> oh, I was so awful and cheesy and just like, uh, but then, you know, you, 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 you learn from it. But at the time I was like, you know what? I'm looking pretty awesome on that. <laughs> I'm not looking pretty awesome. That should be an exercise in how not to do YouTube videos, but it's like you, you do it. Right. And it's like, that's how you learn. It's how you grow at everything. And I just love though, that you, you literally have like 200 things. Your filmography is not like three things. It's like this long, long list of things and varied. So it's like short, it's like 45 minutes. You've got featured docs. You've got like a whole combination, all like this awesome, beautiful indigenous theme, of course, but different aspects of it, you know, so it could be language, but it could also be one of our heroes of the century, I think, Shannon Kustachin. Um, and for people who don't know who she is, she too was from Attawapiskat, and she was this champion, uh, also working on YouTube videos uh, about, you know, education, the importance of it in her community. So can you, can you just talk a little bit about that? Cause I like, I, I want to get to what you're doing right now, but Shannon is just a, such a special person. So maybe you could give a little background about her for people sure. who don't know who she is. Yeah. So Shannon Kostachin, actually, I'll just backtrack a little bit. When I was shooting, um, remembering Ininimowin, when I was up in Ottawa-Piscot, I went and interviewed her dad, Andrew, and he's a relation, like my mom's related to his mom, like their cousin. I don't know. You know how it is when you go up there. Everybody's all related, right? So, explain it. Yeah. <laughs> so he's my relation and I interviewed him and I remember back, this was in 2007, I believe. Was it 2007? When she passed, I think she passed in 2008, right? Um, right? Yes. When I graduated, I believe so. Or no, 2010. Um, anyway, so while I was filming, I went up there, spent some time with Andrew, and he kept saying, you got to talk to my daughter. And I'm like, yes, I want to talk to your daughter. And it just never happened. And he was talking about all the good work that she was doing. She was this like firecracker. She had this, she wanted to be a lawyer, you know, she was just like, she had this, um, this, this fire in her soul, like to fight for what's right and equitable access to education. But unfortunately, I never got to meet her. I was so close, but she was down south going to school with her sister. So um, anyway, so I, uh, I decided to later, um, I approached after Shannon passed away suddenly, which was devastating to the whole community, obviously, because it was her fight that got us on the map in terms of looking at um, you know, what was happening in fly-in communities and how we were being treated in terms of the educational system, because kids were still going to school in portables at that particular time. And um, actually, we do have um, a school now in Ottawa, Scott, which is kind of cool. Yay. But um, I think uh, what, hap what happened with that particular film is I was like sitting at work. I was at Elizabeth Fry. I was still living in Toronto. And I just love... Um, Andrew Kostachin and his wife, Jenny, and I just love their big family. And, you know, I just felt like, I don't know, like something came over me where it was like, I was like, oh, we need to do something for Shannon. Like we need to have some sort of memorial because where she passed away was on the highway. I believe it's highway 11, eh? Like, sorry, I haven't lived out East in a while. So, and then they, the kids in the community would pull over on the side of this really dangerous highway and they had flowers and stuff for her and school buses would go and pay their respect where she passed away. Right. Anyway. So I had this idea and Oh my God, sometimes I have to think things through because I didn't realize how big it was, but I call Andrew, Andrew, um, it's Jules. I think uh, I want to make a monument for Shannon. <laughs> and he's like, he starts crying. He's like, yeah, yeah. that's amazing, Right. And then, but at that time, after I hung up, I was like, how the hell 
do you make a monument? How do I find the money? What do I like? I didn't realize at the time what I had promised to do. And me being who I am, I felt like I had to follow through. Like I could not, I could not let that go. And we started shooting um, as well because I thought it was important to shoot the process of getting that monument made because now the monument is in um, New Lisgard, eh, by the water, her favorite place to kind of go. That's where she we, we put the monument up. And um, when we were filming, Andrew and I went to the accident site and we had some medicine with us. And I don't know if we have it in the film or not. I can't remember because it's an older film, but we we lit the sage and the sage just like the whole thing went up in flames. Like it was just like, whoosh. and we were like, she's here. She's giving us her blessing. Like she wants this to happen. Right. Anyway. So that's basically what the film is about. Like me going on this journey with uh, Serena, her sister and Andrew, and we get the monument made. We have it um, up there in New Lisgard. The whole family came down south. We did a blessing on the ancestral lands up there. And, you know, there was eagles flying, like, you know, and then it was just such a long process. And I remember being scared because we did this fundraiser, too, because I didn't even have any money at the particular time. And I just remember the community coming together and people donating art for me to raise money. And oh, I just yeah. remember waking up going like panic attacks, like I have to do this, but I don't know how I'm going to do it. Like, I, I'm sorry, Shannon. And I used to always think about Shannon walking with me or talking to me or, oh. you know, what I mean? so just so I could find that inspiration, because that was a huge thing to promise, especially a family that was grieving. Right. But we did it and we made the film. And the, that's what the film's about is just like this beautiful, strong spirit who's forever in our memory that still needs yeah. to be on. And I think it's one of the first monuments in Canada of an Indigenous woman. I oh, I think, you know, I think that's the case. I think so. And you know what's so weird? And I don't know why I did that. I did not put my name on the plaque. Like I just, everybody put their names on the plaque like that, that contributed in a big way. And I just didn't feel it was appropriate. But then again, someone told me, well, Jules, you are that monument. <laughs> That's your drive. You don't need to sign it. You don't need to have your name on it. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't about ego either for me. Like, I went, oh, Jules Kostachin. Like, I just felt that it was more for the family, right? So, anyway, it was, uh, that was a hard journey. That's for sure. Like, yeah. Even the film, like, some challenges. Like, anyway, but it's just one of those things. It's a testament. I think that film is. Mm -hmm statement and a testament to her and it was something that I could give to the family as well so, yeah. and and to, to have it forever you know how in the past uh, none of our accounts were ever in history books our voices weren't represented anywhere and it's like this is a legacy it's her legacy it's your legacy it's her parents it's Attawapiskat's legacy it's like look at this warrior girl who was inspired other youth to stand up and not have to wait you know how they always say oh you're the leaders of the future oh it's such a pet yeah. peeve of mine shannon kusachin was the leader of the then yeah. you know you don't have to be a magical age or have a magical credential like she did so much i mean she really helped spark the whole idle no more movement at yeah. um, a as well i mean i feel like you just come from this really amazing <laughs> community people see stuff in the media and be like oh but they don't understand the beauty and the love and the specialness that comes from who we are as people, despite the struggles and with the struggles and, you know, all of that stuff. So I just think it's a beautiful thing you did. That's why I wanted to ask you about it. Cause I know it's dated, like it's 2017. I think that came out, but it's just really special. And she's special. You're special. Adewapiskat special. And just thought, you know, now maybe people will, you know, try to find it somewhere or learn more about Shannon or find a way to support Shannon's dream. All of these like things, right? Cause this is all about like action, go support Shannon's dream. That's what people can do. She was like 15. She was just a baby. Right. When you think about it, just it's your heart. That's a baby that's younger than my twins. And I'm like, wow. And that spark she had was incredible. Eh? Like so articulate. And she was fearless. All right. When she when, did she tell off the prime minister? At yeah, the time? yeah. Truth to power going in. And it's like, well, your office looks pretty posh. Yeah. We don't even get an education. <laughs> it's like this straight up honest day. Eh? I was like, oh, I love this. I love this woman. Yeah. <laughs> Young woman. Oh, 
Yeah, that I mean, that's so awesome. Um, I just love it. So make sure everybody's listening. You go find out about Shannon if you don't already. And what I like about your work is, okay, so there's storytelling. You know, there's documentary filmmaking. But it's also the journey. It's your journey. It was her journey. It's the journey of Atawapiskat. It's the journey of, like, we can all find ourselves in that journey. Um, and, and I I really appreciate the journey aspect of your documentaries, you know, like learning how to speak Cree. That's a journey. If you weren't in a fluent family and you were speaking it fluently, like I wasn't in a fluent family speaking it fluently. And it's like, so all of these things are journeys, not our faults, right? Not our faults that our language was ripped away from us. And, and so those journeys are so important and they're inspiring. And I know that it's hard for people to hear them sometimes, but it's also reassuring. I like to know, you know, as a young person, I wish I knew that you didn't have to be perfect and rich and connected and follow everything to a T uh, to be, to do important things in the world. And mm -hmm. what I like about your documentaries and your stories is like, yeah, we have, we have issues, we have trauma, we've had legacies, we have struggles, but here's how you can do it in our beautifully imperfect way, right? Because none of us are perfect, but there's this weird ideal that you can only be something if you're perfect, you've never made any mistakes, or you never had any difficulties. And it's like, your story shows that that's not the case. I mean, two kids, but then twins, I, I just... <laughs> It feels like a struggle now, you know? I was like, okay, I was with you when it was like two kids, because I have two kids. But then you're like, twin? <laughs> pretty big hill there. That's a pretty big hill just as a mom. I can't imagine trying to do your education or trying to engage in films or trying to contribute to the community. Because that's what I really, really like about you is that you're very connected to us. You're mm -hmm. not just, you know, off somewhere and have forgotten who, you know, all the rest of us are that you're just so connected in it. Um, and so that's why I wanted to talk to you about your current filmography, which get this everyone. So usually if I talk to someone who happens to be a documentary filmmaker or something, it's like, here's my documentary that I have been working on for 10 years. And now it's at a festival and you want to celebrate it and promote it. It's like, okay, what does Jules have in 2023? <laughs> oh, wait, one, two, you got three things in 2023. And then I was, I, you know, you watch the social media and social media is like, oh yeah, she's at film festivals and all this other stuff. So it's like, hey, Jules, can I talk to you about your, your you know, your film at TIFF? And you're like, yeah, it's, it's VIF. <laughs> so for people who don't know, like nerd lawyers like me, TIFF is the Toronto International Film Festival. I thought I was so proud that I knew that. But there's apparently a VIF. But a VIF is the Vancouver International Film Festival. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's hear about that because uh, it's... Wapake. It's playing now. Wapake, but it's, it's uh, playing 1st. now. October 1st? Is the premiere, yeah, at, at VIF. Okay, so we actually... Uh, your people who are just like so awesome said that we could actually play the trailer. And although the people who are listening in the podcast, you're going to hear it. It's also very auditory. And then if you want to watch it or read it with the closed captions for those with hearing um, challenges on YouTube, it's like all of those versions are there. But I just thought, let's, um, let's take a listen to this. And then I want to ask you a whole bunch about it because I've already watched it like 10 times, but let's pretend I'm watching it for the first time. These children didn't get much love, affection, compassion. They never had a chance to mature. And that's why they probably faltered as parents. Their children having children. It's time for the children of residential school survivors to share their truth. I was a alcoholic by the age of 19, a drug addict by the age of 26. It was a real challenge being raised by my mom. I remember her crying at night. I became her caretaker too young. Intergenerational trauma, it's trauma that's carried down from one generation to the next. If nobody breaks that cycle, it will continue. I really want the next generation to know what had happened in our past, but also I want them to be free of this burden. Wapake means tomorrow, so tomorrow means hope. It means that we have a future. 
I love that. What what a beautiful message. And and just the just in that trailer, because I'm no film critic or anything, but you know, you've got the juxtaposition of residential schools. And I think most people now know what happened in Indian residential schools and the trauma that you carry. And then you see these young people, you know, and they have these like everything in the world is just perfect in that moment, big smiles on their faces. And it's like, I instantly thought of how native people, no matter what's happened, just have this crazy humor and we laugh and make fun of each other. And it's like those youth in the, and just in that little fleeting moment, it's like, Oh, that just makes me so happy in the subject that we know is going to be very difficult. So you got to tell me the background to this. How did this one come about? Because I feel like this is going to be an emotional roller coaster. Again, a legacy documentary, but one that's like just tells your story. I think you'll need some Kleenex. <laughs> um, it, it is pretty intense. I'm not going to lie. So I interviewed my mom and then Asavak is my oldest son. And those two in there are my twins, you know, my other son is in there for a little bit. But I also interviewed um, a woman who is the child of a survivor and who um, specializes in working um, therapeutically with uh, Indigenous folks who are survivors and their children. And then um, Joseph Danderan, who is an incredible writer, who is also the child of a survivor. So it's just all these stories kind of weave together. It's just still very emotional because it's like a hard film and I haven't really shown it publicly yet. So I'm a little bit worried because I'm kind of speaking to our experience being raised by survivors because I think it's necessary. We haven't really gone there yet as a community. And, um, you know, I'm in my 50s now, so I feel like there's a whole bunch of us that need to kind of share what has happened to us and our own lived experience. Um, it started in academia where I wanted to do a collection um, and I was trying to get submissions from people who were like direct uh, children of survivors. And it was really hard. People, you know, submitted stuff, but then no one really followed through. And I think it was because it was challenging and people really didn't um, articulate their experience yet. So it kind of fell through, sadly. Um, and then I pitched it to National Film Board and they were like, yeah, let's do it. And I was like, great. And then I didn't realize how emotionally draining and challenging it would be because it's hard. It's still so raw. Like I'm talking about being raised by a survivor, my mom. Right. And I don't want to re-victimize my mom, but I also have to speak my own truth. Right. I feel like, you know, you know, I've grown up with her stories and, you know, they were not easy stories to listen to when you're a little girl, like other people are, parents are reading them fairy tales and stuff. And here I am listening to these horrid stories and then internalizing them and stuff. So I just feel like we're at a place right now where, you know, we're getting older and we need to share what our experience was being raised by these survivors because it's been challenging for the most part, right? Like, cause we're living with their trauma. Their trauma has become our trauma. And then I posed the question, like, who are, who am I without my mother's trauma? I have no idea. Like, what would it be like if I didn't have to carry this huge weight? So it's, uh, if you have a chance, I know you'll cry because it's really, it's not like super heavy. Well, maybe it is. I don't know. Like, I don't know what the audience response is going to be. I don't know what my mom's response is going to be. Is she going to be all mad at me? And like, I mean, I love my mom and we're close now, but it wasn't always like that. Like yeah. we had a time and, you know, she, like, she was a survivor through and through. Like we were up at a particular time. Our beds were made a certain way. Like, we are bet, you know, like everything was so, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like strict, like it, we, we just didn't have a lot of freedom. And then I had my grandmother who never went to residential school. And I'm like, how is this your mom, mom? Like, yeah, they're so different. Like she, my mom was just not affectionate. She wasn't, she didn't ever touch us or kiss us or hold us. Like it was just our upbringing. And you, you don't yeah. understand that is about when you're a kid right like she just didn't have the capacity or didn't know how like she went to school at like five to 16 that's day schools and three different residential schools and then wow. all her brothers and sisters had passed away so my mom's just so like that's a lot of heaviness right so this film is talking about Wapake tomorrow like am I have I passed on this trauma to my kids like and I like that you saw that they look so light and, you know, cause that's, yeah. that's how it should be. They, sh our children should be soaring. That's how we were before, you know, all this systemic crap that we're dealing with. So 
I don't know. It's definitely a statement film. That's for sure. And, uh, you know, it's going to be hard. Like, I just don't know what the, how the community is going to respond. I don't know how survivors are going to respond. Mm-hmm. We didn't go heavy, heavy into the trauma, which I don't think we need to. I feel like, yeah. you know, we've already been there. So I just feel like I kind of gave more space to children of survivors to speak their truth, even though my mom's story is weaved throughout. But I don't know. I'm excited to, you know, hear the good stuff, not the bad stuff. <laughs> Yeah, you just block and delete all the bad stuff. You know what it is? Comments are awful. You always freaking <laughs> the damn comments. All the races come out. <laughs> oh my gosh, I know. And you know what? Like what you're doing is is also very brave because I think at this point in time, most Canadians know Indian residential schools, how the kids, not every kid survived. Those that did often suffered horrible, horrible things. Um, but it is true. We don't really talk too much about, okay, how does trauma get passed on and in what ways? And it doesn't, can be very, very ugly and it can be like horribly, it's a different kind of trauma for the kids, even if you never went to residential school yourself. And so we just have this natural tendency, you know, we don't want to hurt anybody, you don't want to say anything bad, Uh, but at the same time. We owe it to ourselves and our kids and future generations to say, this too was also part of it. And we had experiences and then maybe our kids had experiences. And I just, although it's, it's yucky, I, I, I think that we need to talk about it or you're only getting a part of the story. Right. Right. Yeah. So where can people watch this? And, and okay, bring your Kleenexes, but where can people watch this and when? So it'll be available on the NFB site after it does the festival run. So right now it's just been entered into a whole bunch of festivals. It will be premiering at VIF October 1st and then the Vancouver International Film Festival. And then it's going to Imaginative in Toronto. So I hope to see all the Toronto folks. And if you have classes, bring your class, please. I don't know what date that is. I got to remember, but it's I think it's the 22nd or something on a Sunday at uh, TIFF Lightbox. So if you can come out and support the film, that would be great. Um, and yeah, I believe it's been, um, acquired. I'm not sure by which broadcasters yet, but I feel like it'll be available soon enough. And I'm sure people will use it in the classroom for, um, discussion. I I do know that I scratched the surface. I do know that I kind of opened Pandora's box, (laughs) but that's what I do. I, I feel like, you know, you know, when there's a void, you know, when you're not seeing these stories and, you know, that Mm -hmm. are important to you and, I don't, like I said, I don't want to re-victimize my mom, but it was hard. It was hard. It was not being raised by her. And I love her with all my heart and I support her a hundred percent. It's just, I have to create space, I think, for other people who've gone through what I've gone through in a good way. You know, everything's done respectfully. And a lot of my work too, you mentioned methodology and a lot of my work is following protocol making sure that everyone's okay with the story and that, you know, before moving forward. And I just feel like that is so part of all of the work that we do because we're so held accountable. Like we are so obligated to the community because if we do something wrong, our whole community is going to call us out. So the weight is strong and the stakes, you know, the, the stakes are high for us, like, because everybody's looking at us to do the right thing. So it's not like you know, if someone from outside of the community comes in, they're non-native and they do a story about residential school, they don't have the same kind of consequences. No. Nope. It's huge, right? It's like, so that's why I think I'm kind of nervous is because I'm speaking to something that's my truth, but is it the right time? Because right when we were about to shoot, that's when 215 happened. So it was just like, you know, here I thought, okay, things have calmed, now it's time. And then the 215 happened and it just like, hit me in the heart you know like I think it hit a lot of us in the heart and we just kept going with the production and made it part of our story because it shifted everything like because is a time like do we have to wait till we're elderly to tell our story I don't know like I don't know when the right time is but I also know that I matter <laughs> right? yes. exactly exactly every child matters and we all have that child inside of us that went through all of these things and for people who are listening and might not know what the 215 are we're talking about when it first came out, not for us. Like we know that there's children who never made it home from Indian residential schools. We know that there's family members that are missing, uh, but it's this 
uh, unmarked graves that there's a whole chapter on the unmarked graves in the Truth and Reconciliation Report on Indi Indian residential schools. But it was kind of like the chapter that got skipped over that there wasn't a lot of talk about until Kamloops. Uh, the, you know, they started looking outside the old Kamloops Indian residential school and they thought, well, you know what? It looks like there might be 215 graves. And then it was like, all these other First Nations who were engaged in the exact same searches for their kids. But sometimes we just don't want to say these things. We don't want to cause upset. Then all of a sudden it's like, okay, another First Nation. Well, I've got 80. And another First Nation. Well, I've got 300. And so it just, the number just grew so fast. But you know what, Jules? And like, who am I? All I know is that like, our stories matter too. We matter too. And I don't think waiting is good. Like we waited, like Canada waited too long to mm -hmm. learn about what happened, you know, and many of our elders have passed away and never got acknowledged and never, you know, realized that it wasn't their fault. It's like, okay, well, what about all these kids who've grown up, who've suffered or maybe caught, you know, hurt other people too, because of the trauma they suffered because of their parents. And like all of it matters, all of us matters. And I know, you know, there's cultural protocols, don't upset people and stuff, but it, everyone's truth matters. And I think this is like a, a really important, I think there's no better time to do it. In fact, you know, I mean, what are you going to wait until you're passed on and then you can't make the film or your kids are like, Hey, what was, what did mom go through? And they never get to hear it. So I think it's really, really important. Uh, so make sure people you watch it and Viff and imaginative. I will be an imaginative, so I'm going to try to come to this and like cheer from you in the background, like have extra makeup to just reapply my makeup so I don't look like a weirdo. But that being said, you know, <laughs> I've done that waterproof. It's like, what's wrong with you? Oh, nothing. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Well, the, I mean, like good on you. Like that's why you're my warrior hero. And I, I know you have other things from 2023. So are these things playing at the same time? Like you have another one called broken angel and it says 2023 feature doc. Is this oh, something that did the early circuit or is this also at the same time? So broken angels uh, was inspired by my time when I ran the woman shelter actually, because at that particular time, everybody was telling me, no, there's no audience for this, but I had access to the shelter because I worked in a shelter. I knew that world. So I wrote this script and it took me like 15 years, I think, to get it finally produced. And I made it under 800,000 and 12 days. It was the quickest shoot I ever had in my life and made my first feature film. And the film is kind of like just has its own life. It's been on APTN and I'm sure it's gonna be on APTN again. And it's about an indigenous an indigenous woman who is faced to either fight or flee for her life or she ends up fighting. And it was just based on all these incredible women that I worked with when I worked in the social service oh. sector, all these strong friggin' native women that just, I don't even know how they just, they, they woke up every day and did what they had to do, right? And that's what we all do, I think, but you know, um, so that's Broken Angel. That was released in 2022. And then I'm just in post with, because there's a trilogy, Broken Angel, Angela's Shadow, and the third one is Katawasis, and It Is Beautiful that I'm writing right now. And we're in post-production for Angela's Shadow. All of these stories have ghosts, because I think that's so part of our day-to-day. -day. Like, how do we not talk about ghosts in the Native community? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> it's just like, what? You, what? Your story don't have a ghost? What? Anyway. But yeah, that's what I did. And I just, uh, we're doing a community screening for Chubby Cree as well. Uh, that mm. one is in Edmonton. That's for TELUS original. Uh, that'll be on TELUS soon. And that's that little boy, Noah, who has medicine in his voice. I don't know if you've ever heard Noah sing. He was going to be on the Ellen show before COVID. But check out yeah. Chubby. His voice is I've never heard a kid sing like that. Like, and we did a short doc about his, um, you know, his journey with his grandmother. He sings with his grandmother. Like how much more traditional can you get with <laughs> like the film is so beautiful. Right. So that'll be yeah. in, in October, I believe it's October 13th, but um, yeah, we're doing a community screening and then it goes on long online, but it's also been submitted in to a few other uh, festivals as well. So wow. yeah. Just, wow. I have also have a film, I think, for women called Kaya Meta about Indigenous women going through menopause. Oh. 
<laughs> it is so good. I feel and- like this is women from the 70s, probably. That's a really relevant. But it was friggin' released right before COVID, so it kind of got lost. But like, I became the menopause queen for a while because it was—it's online. But if you could check it out, just put CBC Gem, Jules Kostachin, and Kaya Meta is such a great, funny film. It's all these Native women coming together talking about menopause. So that's phenomenal. Like uh, again, things that we don't talk about, right? Like you might see people on Oprah talking about menopause or whatever with doctors, but like, what about us and our experiences and? You know, we just get crankier and it can be a whole thing. So, you know, and I'll make sure to post links too so that people can easily reference it. I mean, I've got your website up there, jewelscustachian.com. Pretty easy, but um, where you can actually get it and see it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I I know like we're almost at the end, but I I don't want to let you go without talking to you about your company, because guess what, everybody, in addition to all of the amazing things she is, and I'm still really hung up on (laughs) twins, but she's also got her own production company. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? How did that get started? And what do you do? It's just me. (laughs) Okay, so of course it is. It's just you. (laughs) I have a TV series called ASCII Boys, which I, I I kind of I pitched when I was in my master's at TMU back in the day. It was called Ryerson University. And I remember my prof just kind of laughed at me and said, there's no audience for a show called ASCII Boys. And then I pitched it to APTN and I got approved and I created my production company back in 2010. And uh, ASCII Boys is still available, I think, through APTN or online. So, and it's a show about these kids that uh, reconnect with their community. They're urban boys and they're my older sons, Asvac and Mehegan. And yeah, so I've just been producing stuff through my company and it's just me right now. Hopefully one day I'll create an em- enterprise, you know, and build capacity, but it's really hard when it's just yourself. But that's why I hire others to kind of do business affairs and stuff. And yeah. Because good grief. We just don't have the money, right? Native people, we just don't got those assets and money. So it's like we just got to do it day by day and find people that support our work. And I found an amazing executive producer named Patty, who's just like my angel. She helps me with productions. She is such an ally. That's an ally. Like people use ally loosely. Ally is action verb, you know, when people actually do something to create change. Yeah. They shoulder the burden. Like, yeah. You know, shoulder the burden instead of just getting us to do everything. Now, I have to ask you, too. So the name of it, some people oh, might say it's like visuals. Because I have to but I'm like, is that is that a, like a play on your name, Jules, and it's visual together? I had a Jamaican friend who could never say Jules. And she would call me from across campus, Jules. <laughs> so then, like, <laughs> so then I was with my partner, Jake, and he's like, visuals that's a cool name and I was like yeah you're right visuals <laughs> that's where it comes from uh, my really fun Jamaican friend who could never say my friggin' name <laughs> I love it it's but you gotta be cool I love it I love <laughs> it you gotta say it with a really like thick accent too Jewels. <laughs> <laughs> so funny yeah anyway that's oh that's my gosh it comes from <laughs> Jules, I could literally. (laughs) So, Jules, you know, I could literally talk to you for hours and hours and hours. You just make me happy and sad all at the same time. Uh, You know, it's just kind of the way we are. But that that being said, the fact that you're from the 70s and, you know, similar experiences, that just feels good when you can see yourself and someone else, even though we, you know, we do different things. I just, I love it. I love the work that you do. And I love that you're out there on the front lines. And I know not everyone's nice about things. And sometimes people think they're professional critics or they're just mean for no good reason or just racist, which is even worse. Um, But you just keep doing it. You keep doing it. You keep telling our stories, the stories that haven't been told, the stories that need to be told. But you've got this awesome balance, you know, with like the youth in there and kids smiling. And so just keep doing what you're doing. No, I am your number one fan, not in a misery kind of way, you know, like I'm not going to capture you or anything, but like a big fan, fan kind of way. And I support all your work. And if there's ever anything I can do for legit to promote your work, whether it's this podcast or anything else, uh, sign me up because I just love everything you do. And I feel like there's going to be a billion more things come from you. Thank you. Chimigwech for having me. Thank you. 
Yes. And and thank you to all the listeners for listening. If you're listening to the podcast, thanks to the viewers. If you're watching on YouTube, thanks for those who are reading closed captions for um, listening and and learning. And the best way to support Indigenous creatives is to actually support Indigenous creatives. So share all of their work, support them if they're, you know, bead artists, buy their bead work. If they're filmmakers, show up to their films, buy their films, buy tickets, like whatever it is, do it. And then for this podcast, you can share that. You can use it in your classrooms like Jules does. Uh, now she has a new one to use. And uh, like, share, comment, trigger the good algorithm. You know, all the haters have their own algorithm and they get all the attention. Well, let's just trigger the good algorithm. Let's just have a reconciliation algorithm and just share all the things we do and all of that stuff. You can support us. So thank you so much, Jules. Thank you so much to all the listeners. Till next time, keep living a warrior life. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting my podcast. Your donations help me keep the Warrior Life podcast open access to everyone and free from those annoying ads. And it's super simple. Just click on the link below to sign up for a Patreon monthly or yearly subscription or click the links for the Buy Me A Coffee app or the Ko-fi app to make one-time contributions. And if you belong to an awesome community group, business, or organization that's committed to Indigenous reconciliation, consider sponsoring an episode or two, or as many as you like. Thank you for helping me lift the voices of Indigenous warriors doing phenomenal things to help make our world a better place.